0: Hello and welcome to the BBC Country Countryfire magazine podcast, the podcast as we call it, where you can escape into the countryside for a weekly wild adventure. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the editor of the magazine and host of this podcast. Before we start, I'm delighted to say that the podcast has been shortlisted by the British Society of Magazine Editors for an award, Best Innovation of the Year, so we're delighted about that and we find out later this summer if we've won. For now, we have a lovely new episode where we explore some strange stories about red squirrels, sparrows and other matters. Writer Caroline Green has been collecting old natural history books for many years and has uncovered a few little gems to share with us. Plus, listen on for one of the first of the great modern nature writers, Edward Thomas.
1: So when I was younger I had what I suppose in the olden days would have been called a hobby, which was to go into second-hand bookshops and rummage around to find old natural history books. And I very much judged them by their cover because I loved the ones with beautiful spines or designs on the cover and ones with lots of etchings inside and sketches. But I particularly also liked the language that was used And the reflection of the times that they were written in. And anyway, with this time of lockdown, I thought I would look them out and I've started reading them again. And here are a few passages that are quite interesting. This first piece is taken from a book called The Naturalist's Cabinet. Uh, containing interesting sketches of animal history, illustrative of the natures, dispositions, manners and habits of all the most remarkable quadrupeds, birds, fishes, amphibia, reptiles, etc. in the known world. And this was written by a Reverend Thomas Smith in 1806. And it's a description of the squirrel, which in those days meant really the red squirrel. And it goes like this. This little animal is equally admired for the elegance of its figure, the activity of its motions and the liveliness of its disposition. Though naturally wild, it is easily domesticated and, notwithstanding its timidity, it soon becomes perfectly familiar. The head, body, legs and tail of the squirrel are of a bright brown colour inclining to red but the breast and belly are white. The ears are ornamented with long tufts of hair The eyes are full, black and sparkling, and the tail is so long and umbrageous that it not only assists the animal in leaping from tree to tree amidst its native woods, but also, by covering the whole body, serves as an excellent defence from the cold. Linnaeus asserts that in crossing a river, the squirrel places itself upon a piece of bark, and erecting its tail to catch the wind, uses it as a sail and thus boldly commits itself to the mercy of the waves. During the spring, these animals seem peculiarly active, pursuing each other among the trees and exerting various efforts of agility. In the warm summer evenings, they may also be observed in a similar exercise. They seem to dread the heat of the sun, for during the day they commonly remain in their nests and make their principal excursions in the evening or at night. The nest of the squirrel is generally formed among the branches of an umbrageous tree where they begin to fork off into small ones. After choosing the place where the timber begins to decay and where a hollow may the more easily be formed the animal begins by making a kind of level between these forks and then, bringing moss, twigs and dry leaves, it binds them together with such art and firmness as to resist the most violent storm. This is covered on all sides, and has but a single aperture at the top, just large enough to admit the little animal, and this opening is itself defended from the weather by a kind of canopy, formed like a cone, so as to throw off the rain. The nest, thus formed, is very roomy, soft, and every way commodious. The provision of nuts and acorns is seldom found in its nest, but in the hollows of the tree, carefully laid up together and where it is never touched by the animals but in cases of necessity when no food is to be had abroad. Thus, a tree serves both for a residence and a storehouse, and without leaving it during the winter, the squirrel possesses all those enjoyments that his nature is capable of receiving. The squirrel is a vigilant animal, and it is asserted that if the tree in which it resides be but touched at the bottom, it instantly quits its nest flies off to another tree and thus travels along the whole forest until it finds itself perfectly out of danger. In this manner it continues for some hours at a distance from home until the alarm is passed and then it returns by paths that to almost every other quadruped but itself are utterly impassable. It generally bounds from one tree to another at a very great distance and if it is at any time obliged to descend, runs up the side of the next tree with surprising facility. In northern climates, the squirrels change their colour on the approach of winter and become perfectly grey. And it is worthy of remark that this alteration will occur in those climates, even within the warmth of a stove. Squirrels are found in almost every country, but they are most numerous in northern and temperate climates. So I love that for its language, sort of eccentric observations, including the one that squirrels make little boats for themselves and can use their tails as sails. And this was 100 years before Beatrix Potter used the same sort of thing in her story of Squirrel Nutkin. But it was quite an old belief, and I discovered that this book, The Naturalist's Cabinet, was mostly cribbed from another bigger volume uh, written and compiled by Oliver Goldsmith, the poet and playwright. Um, in the 1770s and this volume is called A History of the Earth and Animated Nature and there are two volumes and it covers sort of encyclopedic range of descriptions including the same sort of description of squirrels crossing water with kind of makeshift boats Um, and I'll read that extract from the goldsmith one now. So this passage describes a whole army of squirrels crossing a forest and coming to a lake, which they can't otherwise cross. And this is what happens. Upon approaching the banks and perceiving the breadth of the water, they return as if by common consent into the neighboring forest, each in quest of a piece of bark, which answers all the purposes of boats for wafting them over. When the whole company are fitted in this manner, they boldly commit their little fleet to the waves, every squirrel sitting on its own piece of bark and fanning the air with its tail to drive the vessel to its desired port. In this orderly manner, they set forward and often cross lakes several miles broad. But it too often happens that the poor mariners are not aware of the dangers for their navigation, for although at the edge of the water it is generally calm, in the midst it is always more turbulent. There the slightest additional gust of wind oversets the little sailor and his vessel altogether. The whole navy that but for a few minutes before rode proudly and securely along is now overturned and a shipwreck of two or three thousand sail ensues. This passage, um, in common with a lot of writing of this period and uh, for many years afterwards, contains references to how easily or not the certain animals are tamed or domesticated usually for pets or kind of some sort of domestic entertainment and um, this talks about the squirrel being easily tamed but also contains another sort of rather damning reference to the people who might do it not because the squirrel will be deprived of its liberty but because uh, the people concerned don't seem to be up to much else. But now you can see what I mean. The squirrel is easily tamed, and it is then a very familiar animal. It loves to lie warm and will often creep into a man's pocket or his bosom. It is usually kept in a box and fed with hazelnuts. Some find amusement in observing with what ease it bites the nut, and eats the kernel. In short, it is a pleasing, pretty little domestic, and its tricks and habitudes may serve to entertain a mind unequal to stronger operations. Well, moving forward to a book from uh, 1903 called *Familiar Wild Birds* by W. Swaysland, we also have a reflection of the times in interactions between people and birds in that quite a lot of the book talks about egg collecting and also how various birds tasted if you were to cook them. But um, there's also quite charming characterisations of birds. The one I'd like to read is for the house sparrow, which goes as follows. This bird is thoroughly republican in its nature, considering itself to have an equal right of existence with other members of the creation. Intensely self-reliant, the sparrow contrives to exist under even the most exceptional circumstances and, though ordinarily well-behaved, can at times show himself a most pugnacious fellow and, when oppressed, will valiantly assail birds much larger and stronger than himself, such as starlings, jackdaws and even rooks. However, his quarrels are mostly family quarrels and invariably originate in the question of the right of possession of a crust of bread thrown out by some kindly hand. His well-known chirrup is at such times changed to a sharp angry note that almost defies definition but is known to all. The difference in the appearance of the plumage of a country sparrow, as compared with his town-bred cousin, would be hardly imagined. The fresh, bright plumage of the one, displaying the prettily marked black, white and brown, whilst smoke and dirt hide the beauty of the town sparrow, so that it is sometimes difficult to distinguish the sex at a glance. The male, however, has a brilliant black throat, and is otherwise more determined in colour, the hen being especially deficient in the bright brown of the wings and the chocolate mark over the eyes. The sparrow invariably chooses its home near the habitations of man, and in early spring, may often be heard and seen fighting desperately for the possession of some favoured female sparrow beauty, who, with the conqueror, at once starts housekeeping. The nest is a mystery, and is composed at times of the most extraordinary materials, some of which, especially the feathers, must have been carried for miles, while some of the straw tax their strength to the uttermost. Straw, hay, Wool and feathers are, however, the main materials but they will often seize a stray piece of flannel or old carpet and give it a place in the nest. This is very large and loose, but much depends upon the situation. In this peculiar nest, the hen lays generally six eggs, which are especially varied in colour, though generally pale grey, streaked and spotted with blackish brown. They will have three or four nests in the year, so that despite the efforts of those mistaken institutions, sparrow clubs, the bird still continues as plentiful as ever, if indeed its numbers be not on the increase. Except for those now generally defunct clubs, the cat is the sparrow's worst enemy, many thousands annually falling victims to the wiliness of Puss, who finds that the ivy-clad walls of houses make the most fatal traps for the birds congregating there to roost. The food of the sparrow includes almost everything it meets that is eatable. The reason of its systemic destruction, some years past, was because of the harm done by it in eating the buds of fruit trees, notably gooseberries and red currants. Somewhat like the bullfinch, the practice seems at times due to pure wantonness, as the sparrow will even pull primroses and other flowers to pieces, where but little chance of food exists. Again, towards the end of summer, sparrows become somewhat gregarious and do considerable damage to the ripe corn, but against this formidable list the sparrow can show much good done by eating insects and the seeds of many obnoxious weeds. Whilst the number of insects taken to feed its young is almost incredible, it is amusing to watch a sparrow engaged in picking spiders or their larvae together with other insects from the walls of houses and gardens. But these old books don't just give a sense of the values of the times they were written in, they also give a different sense of time itself. I don't know whether it's the fact that a lot of the early naturalists were vicars, but they certainly seemed to be able to give more time to observing nature. Well, we get this sense of time stretching further, and along with this there's the sense of a greater abundance of nature. There are often descriptions of huge flocks of birds, carpets of flowers, and rivers teeming with fish. This sense of leisurely plenty is contained in this brief passage from a Victorian book by Leafy Ways by Francis Knight. It is late in the month of August. The hay harvest of this half-hearted summer, long delayed and sadly marred by rain, is over at length. The sun-browned mowers who, with measured steps, kept time, knee-deep in the scented grass, swing their sides no more. The last wagon, piled high with its fragrant load, rumbling on broad wheels down the narrow lane, has been cheered into the stackyard. The fields are bare, where, but a short month ago, was spread a living carpet, sweet-scented, many-hued, stirred by murmuring bees and the bright wings of roving butterflies, is now a smooth monotony of green. It is the close of a pleasant chapter, in the history of the year. Well, with the passing of the Victorian age, nature writing began to change. The writers reflected a different relationship with nature and perhaps were more aware of a sense of loss as the landscape began to change and society began to change too. Of course, the biggest upheaval at the beginning of the 20th century was the outbreak of war. And you can't talk about nature writing in these years without mentioning Edward Thomas. His nature poetry is poignant for the small details he notices and celebrates, and one of his poems, which marks the idea that, that you only notice things when you actually lose them, is this one called First Known When Lost. I never had noticed it until was gone, the narrow copse where now the woodman lops the last of the willows with his bill. It was not more than a hedge overgrown, One meadow's breadth away, I passed it day by day. Now the soil was bare as a bone, and black betwixt two meadows green, though fresh-cut faggot ends of hazel made summer mends with a gleam, as if flowers they had been. Strange it could have hidden so near, and now I see as I look that the small, winding brook, a tributary's tributary, Rises there.
0: Now that's a lovely way to finish and I could listen to Edward Thomas for hours. Thank you to Caroline Green for those amusing and intriguing insights into how our ancestors viewed the wild world and some of its creatures. And thanks also to Hannah Tribe for the background recording of Woodland Birds to accompany the piece. For more articles about UK wildlife, nature writing and our countryside in general, head to our website countryfar.com. And don't forget, we have a lovely print magazine too, which you can find in most big supermarkets or order online from our website. And please let us know what you think about the podcast by emailing me, Fergus Collins, editor of the magazine, at the following email address, editor at countryfile.com. So you've been listening to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast produced in Bristol by Jack Baton. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.